everyone, and welcome to the Darkcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Miley, and this is DCI number 150. Over the past four years, we have worked very hard to bring interesting and insightful interviews with video game developers, large and small, mostly small. But it's been a great time and a fun adventure. My co-host Brian Tyler has been with me 99.9% of the time and carried the torch by himself a few times. And to that, I am incredibly grateful. The reason that I'm saying this is that DCI, along with the Dark Cast, will be going on a hiatus for a little while. I've recently changed careers, and my schedule is, is not conducive to be able to continue the podcast. And I don't want to continue it at a subpar quality compared to what it's been. So I want to thank everybody that has listened over the last four years. And I want to thank Joel Zerdelup and Brian Tyler and all of our guests that have joined us and had a great time talking about video games. So, uh, on with normal business. In this episode, we talked to Kurt Gantz of Triconic Studios about their first game, Rail Theory. Rail Theory is a third-person action horror shooter inspired by Resident Evil 4 and Dark Souls. It goes on Kickstarter on July 18th. You can find links for that in the show notes for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Now on with the show. Well, Kurt, welcome to the Darkcast. Glad to have you on the show. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Glad to have you. Glad to have you. Uh, we are here to talk about a game that you're, uh, you and your brother, I believe, are, are working on and have been for a little while. Uh, yeah, it's a project that we started working on about three years ago as kind of a hobby. We were okay. just getting into game design. We're like, oh man, these game engines have gotten really streamlined, so we gave it a crack and just kept on improving and just figuring out new stuff. And we've been having a lot of fun doing it. Awesome. So we take the opportunity to try to basically make a full game out of it. Okay. I have some concepts we've been playing around with. That's really cool. Uh, and you guys have a Kickstarter that's coming up uh, here pretty soon. So before we get into the game, though, uh, let's talk a little bit about you. You mentioned that uh, you and your brother have been working on it for a while. What what do you do when you're not working on Rail Theory? Uh, sometimes we like to play a few different games. We're both pretty <laughs> recent college graduates, so okay, graduated favorite. This would be a good time to try to get this going. Sure. sure. Like talking about game design, different things like that. Okay. Is... Keeping up with the latest things that are coming out. Nice. Anything. Uh... Anything of note uh, that you've really been enjoying recently? Uh, I've been playing a lot of Overwatch. Okay. Been pretty fun. Got it uh, lately. I was a backer with that a few or two Junes ago, I think it was. So yeah. we've been through that. It's been a lot of fun. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I, I found that the uh, uh, there are kind of two sets of opinions on that game. The the people that really just wanted like modern not. Not modern day interpretation of Banjo Kazooie in that like it is adapted to modern sensibilities, but just a version of Banjo Kazooie that runs like on modern consoles with like modern graphics and stuff like that. Uh, and then there are people that wanted it like transformed into something that um, you know was more akin to, to stuff that's out today. And depending on what you wanted, uh, dictates your opinion of the game. Yeah, I that. <laughs> Yeah, with any type of like a nostalgic revival game, there's always going to be a lot of split opinions. Oh yeah, 
of what people want and what they think they're going to get, especially if there's a game that is uh, funded or has a Kickstarter, but they haven't really posted concept art yet. Like, that wasn't an issue with Ukulele, because they already had, you got an idea of what you were getting into, that they were using a 3D engine. But with, like, some 2D games, like, people wouldn't know whether to expect a 2D or a 3D art style. Sure. And it just goes back to the people having different opinions about what it should be in the end. Absolutely. Uh, now, you mentioned that uh, you're a recent graduate. Did you go to school for game design, or...? Um, actually, no. I got a degree in computer-aided design, and then I transferred and graduated recently with a mechanical engineering degree, which actually the control systems aspect of it has a lot of overlap with video game development, so that's actually been something that's kept me very interested in it. I had a lot of fun. Okay, I was, was going to say, I feel like that would kind of overlap in some ways, maybe not in, in every way, but in, in some ways there, there should be some crossover It's there. fundamentally, so okay. that's cool. That is cool. Yeah, my brother, on the other hand, he has a more uh, game design-specific degree. I can't remember what it is offhand. It's like digital arts and design. Okay. It's, it's crazy that there's so many different, uh, you know, like video game-related degrees nowadays. Like, you, you go back just a couple of years, and it was like game design. No, that was it. That's it. Or <laughs> si- computer science. Like, those were the two things you could get, and there was nothing else. Um but there's like a billion different programs now, and they all have different names, and they all mean different things. <laughs> yeah, I see a lot of uh, ads on the side of the uh, like websites for different online types of game degree programs, and things like that. Yeah, I'd be curious to check them out, but I don't know how they're actually structured. It'd be cool if they had like hands-on type of things you could really get your hands on the material. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. That's basically that's what I've found from the past few years of just practicing. Is the best way to learn game development is just to pick a project and just start working on it and keep improving and iterating until you really start to get fundamentals down, which is part of the process. It's just really enjoyable to see improvements over time, especially when you look back a few years at, like, where you started. I can imagine. Uh, What what have you been dabbling in and kind of, I I assume, self-teaching? Have you you done any sort of, like, online tutorials or anything? I know um, uh, Game Maker has a pretty extensive, like, built-in tutorial uh, have you worked with any of that stuff, or has it just been uh, just kind of getting in there and, get, like you said, getting your hands dirty, getting your hands on it? It's actually been a mixture of both, but definitely I've gone through a ton of, like, YouTube videos, different tutorials for, like, Blender, different Unity tutorials. Like, there's just people have made so much useful content, so it's just it's really nice that you can just find all the information that you need to get started from a, div- a diverse pool of content that people make. Sure, sure. Uh, now, um, as you mentioned, you've been kind of working on this for for a little while. What what kind of drew you to um, to game design? Like, I, I assume that the the degree that you got was since it, it wasn't actually game design, it potentially geared towards something else that maybe you want to do. What what made you decide to to dabble in in game design and kind of to figure that whole thing out? <laughs> So I think somewhere along the line, I started seeing uh, videos for just, like, the different game engines that were starting to become mainstream. I'm like, oh, man, that's really cool. Like, you see, like, these small development teams that are actually able to make games, and I just figured that would be a cool thing to just pick up as a hobby. And then over time, that just evolved to the point where you can make something that you really think can, like, be a good foundation for actually making a game. Okay. And my brother's always had an interest in game development stuff like that he 
put different weapons into like Oblivion and Skyrim, like modding and just developing 3D models and texturing for that application. So he was definitely eager and happy to like jump onto it. Thought it was really cool. Sure. That was very cool. Uh, if um, just out of curiosity, with with your current degree, what what else would you want to try to do? I feel like I'm actually getting into questions later on in the interview, but I'm just curious. <laughs> oh, for the engineering, yeah, I have an interest in like air, the aerospace industry. So that's something that would be really cool. Okay. To get into. Also, it'd be really cool to, like to get involved with the Tesla automotive automotive vehicles, but I don't really have any experience with that. Sure. It's just something that's really interesting, though. It's very interesting, absolutely. Um, and you could combine those things and, and maybe work on like spacecraft. Yeah. <laughs> electric jet. Yeah. Solar powered electric jet. Crowdfunding for that next year. <laughs> that's. <laughs> <laughs> that's. I'm, I'm sure there will be. Uh, maybe not next year, but it it can't yeah. be too far off. <laughs> Um, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, um, as, as I said earlier, we are, we're here to talk about the game uh, that you guys are working on, and that is Rail Theory, and we've got a Kickstarter uh, coming out on that. What What's the date of, of the Kickstarter? It's on July 18th okay. of this year. Fantastic. Awesome. So that is not far away at all. Uh, but let's dig into what Rail Theory is. Like, what I guess, brief overview, what is this game? So basically, Rail Theory started off as, like, just it was a Resident Evil 4 kind of inspired game that we could just get some practice developing but then over time we started to figure out these cool different systems that we could add on and we eventually figured that we could have this enemy system that has randomly generated components on it that's kind of tied into player skill so we thought just that could be flushed out into a really cool concept just to base a game around okay so very much like gameplay and kind of, you know, interesting tool sets and stuff first. Uh, what What's the story uh, or kind of setup of, of the world? Why, why are we going through what appears to be like limbo or hell or something, shooting these randomly generated uh, zombie monsters? So basically, I guess the game's storyline in a nutshell is you're playing as a guy named Flynn Whitera, and basically you're the last human contact of a distant like kind of research facility on a planet called Arginus and basically it used to be a collaboration between humans and this race called the Arginians but for some reason the humans stopped partaking in the research but you still have to go there a few times a year just to maintain the kind of hybrid infrastructure that's been set up between the two races so as you start to get in that you start to figure out what happened between them but then of course something catastrophic happens and Basically, the goal of the game is you're trying to repair your own ship with, like, this hybrid kind of system where you're scavenging parts off other ships to try to repair yours so that you can escape while also dealing with the circumstances of what's going on with this crystalline-based uh, outbreak. Okay. Uh, now, kind of um, with that mindset of having, like, kind of a central objective that you're, you're kind of tried to accomplish a, a repairing your ship is it a is it just like a level based kind of linear progression or is it like I don't know you're, you're going out in one direction on the map getting a part bringing it back to your ship uh, having something else to get kind of going out in another direction uh, how, how how are you actually going about repairing your uh, your spaceship 
Yeah, so originally the game's design was kind of going to be more linear like that. But then what we started getting into was kind of having the branching level design. Kind of like, it's not quite open level design, but if you kind of think of like the way level design is set up in a Souls game, where you can choose a different path and they kind of interconnect with one another, but it's not necessarily linear. We think that formula could work really well with this type of game. Okay. So, kind of one destination, but multiple ways to get there. Yeah, exactly. And you can go to the destinations in different orders, which also ties into one of the kind of cool mechanics that we have planned for the game, is that depending on which area you do first, you basically change the properties of surrounding areas. So, like, an example off the top of my head I can think of would be, like, if you do, like, a kind of cold or a frozen area first, like, a reactor could blow up, which would freeze over part of, like, the neighboring, like, kind of caustic swamp area. So then if you go there next, some of the enemies and maybe the boss fights would have, like, frost properties and stuff like that. But it wouldn't be like that if you had done that area first and, like, vice versa. So we want to have interactions like that between the different areas where they change depending on what order you do them in. Okay. So is that a um, not necessarily random thing but I, I mean is that like a scripted or would that be a scripted thing of like every time you uh go to you know the ice area just to, to go along with that example and you, you blow up that reactor like the the adjacent areas always kind of ice over and if you went to the swamp then i, I don't i don't know you, you blow up a swamp reactor and so the other areas become kind of swampy or or is that I don't know, not necessarily randomized, but uh, systematized. Is that, or is it, like I said, more um, scripted and like it's always the same each each time you go that way? Yeah, I would say it's more or less scripted to be the same. Okay. But there's just several combinations of the ways you could do them. Sure. So it lets you experience areas in different ways and just would also give a lot of replayability. Okay, very cool. Um, now... When you change the properties of an area next to you, would that potentially make it harder or easier for the, the adjacent areas, or does it just make it different? I think that could go both ways, especially we're still hammering out what types of gameplay we want to have, but the foil dredge is one of the main weapons that we have in the demo for the game, which is basically a weapon that's powered by the crystals that are created to store energy for the enemies that you're fighting. And we're thinking that we could have them kind of depending on the region that they're in, you get the effect of that in the ammo. So, like, you could have ice or fire or caustic shots that you can kind of switch back and forth between. So, basically, if you go to a certain area with the corresponding, like, strong ammo type that would be good there, then it could have that type of interaction. Okay. Very cool. Isn't it We'd want to have a lot of mechanics built around that one weapon and these types of interactions. Okay. Uh, now you you already mentioned the um, the uh, what, what was the name of the gun in? I guess? Oh, foil dredge. Foil dredge. What other kind of weapons though do you have at your disposal? And are you uh, so? Well, actually, I guess before that, who are who are we fighting in this game? We've got some like really wide mouth, creepy looking. Uh, zombie monsters that are attacking us and like breaking off their own horns and beating us with them. What's going on there? <laughs> so basically, the generalized enemies that are just like part of the demo are the Arginian population that is still at the research facility and then that surrounding area. 
and then basically there's some other just different strains of the what we're calling the erythromolus kind of bacteria or the life form that basically takes over other entities mm. and how they'll have effects on just different populations that live within the area. Okay. So is that is that what was being researched, the erythromolus? Or... Yeah. Because okay. basically one of the main, the underlying storylines of the game is they found this these energy-dense crystals and they were basically, they built this research facility in order to find applications for them and different types of reactors because of how the crystals could take on the properties of other energies or other properties of different just different types of materials okay gotcha right and and then now back to the the other question that i started to ask and then stop myself uh what's up with all the the weapons that we're using to kill the um the rith and the the bodies that they've taken over oh yeah so in the demo we have the uh your standard shotgun, good stuff for close-up range, handgun for long range, and then the foil dredge, which has range and melee capabilities, and you can do charge shots and stuff like that. I think moving forward, we're definitely going to be focusing a lot more on having a unique gameplay style involving a combination of range and melee with the foil dredge, especially if we have the different types of elemental ammos that it can use, and you can swap back and forth between them with both ranged and melee. And then you have like a just more standardized weapons that would have some other specific functionality like you'd have the handgun where you can use it to dislodge like a certain crystal from an enemy or break off a certain weak point that the foil dredge would just pass through because it's a type of energy that wouldn't interact with it but you want to destroy it so that you can get underneath of it like other weapons that aren't the don't use the foil dredge ammo would have some specific utility that would give it its own purposes okay so each um, each weapon kind of has its, its pros and cons as far as uh, what it does to the, the enemies and, and whatnot. Exactly. They'd all have their own specific utilities, so that they'd have like a underlying purpose. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, plans for other weapons, or is it kind of you know uh, refining and, and making the the three that are currently available uh, just work together in a you know nice rock say paper scissors function. <laughs> We definitely have plans for other weapons. Like, we have a model of this interesting kind of futuristic rifle that we made, but we never had time to integrate. And there's also going to be a lot more functionality added to the foil dredge and the different types of ammo that it can use. Because basically what we want it to feel like is each type of ammo that the foil dredge uses would feel like its own different type of weapon. And, like, the melee would have its own move set so that there would be different play styles based around each ammo type, mm. how they would relate to one each other, one another. And then other weapons would have specific utilities, like if we had a rifle, obviously you'd have like, uh, some reason to snipe, which we'd want to make sure it has a meaningful application. Sure. Any other weapon like that. Okay. Um, as far as this, this might not be something that you guys um, have you know, decided, because I feel like it, it might be something that comes with playtesting or something, um, but as far as the different ammo types for the foil dredge, uh, would it be like once you pick up like ice ammo, it's now like the ice foil dredge until you pick up like fire ammo, or would it be something that you can swap between those various different ammo types for the foil dredge? Uh, yeah, that's more the direction we're heading to. We're still in the process of going through some different ideas with how that would work. Sure. Whether or not we want it to be like you have like four different types of foil dredge ammo, 
that you can kind of convert them between each other using different environmental things. Like if you threw a handful of it in like a pool of lava, it would turn into fire, stuff like that. Mm. Fire okay. pool demo. So those are okay. things that we're going to be playing around with over the next few weeks. Cool. Very cool. Can you talk a little bit about like the, the randomized enemy components? You mentioned it earlier, but just you know a little more in-depth in what's, what's actually going into that and how that affects you killing bad guys. <laughs> oh, yeah. So basically, with the base enemies, so we had a few different types of enemies in the demo. We have, like, just, like, I guess the standard enemies, you could say, and then we had, like, mid-tier kind of enemies where you got, like, the firearm guy and the kind of a caustic dock rift, and then we have the boss fight. So basically, the the base enemies, like the smaller ones, they're basically set up that they're kind of like blank canvases, and basically they're populated with randomized assets. Like, I think in the demo there's like three or four different types of head halves they can have. There's like ten different jaws they can spawn, things like that. Like ten different horns they can spawn, just mainly for aesthetics as we were like learning about the different mechanics. And you have like the one horn that can spawn in like a weapon that it can rip off. So basically we're just experimenting with cosmetic versus practicality Mm. and so in the demo like there's a lot of cosmetic ones but the main ones that actually make a difference are like this carbon head half that deflects any kind of shot or just is impenetrable and also a larger weapon horn that like you mentioned before they can rip off and then beat you with (laughs) so what's cool about that is we came up with that system first so we thought that'd be kind of cool but then we took it a bit further with monitoring different play statistics which basically influence the likelihood that some of these components would be generated in this case the uh, for the demo it was just the carbon head half and the weapon horn what dictates that what causes those to to spawn more often so it's kind of like a ranking system in the demo I think it was your hit accuracy and the amount of damage you've taken were a few and then also number of deaths was the other one okay because I, I was I was definitely seeing a lot of people with um, heads that were not taking damage so I was just uh, doing the next obvious thing and shooting them in the groin uh, yes. but <laughs> will they get uh, like armor plated cod pieces if, <laughs> if you do you're, that you got above 95% accuracy maybe <laughs> that could be a thing and then they'll rip it off and try to attack you with it. oh god please no <laughs> Yeah, let's let's probably not go that that way. That that might be a little traumatizing for people. (laughs) But moving forward with that, we would definitely just experiment with which like assets that can be generated and which ones have the most like meaningful impact on gameplay and which ones actually kind of change up gameplay the most. Hmm. Which we would value more over like subtle aesthetic changes. Okay. So how, how fewer, more meaningful changes than, you know, more, like, I guess, less meaningful ones? Exactly. Just, like, I guess less meaningful ones would just be, like, I guess, randomized cosmetics, which you would yeah. still have. We just wouldn't put as much resources into them as ones that actually change up gameplay and have meaningful impacts on how you would go about fighting a certain enemy or a certain group of enemies. Okay. Yeah, I, I feel like... Um... You know, having different armor components that make enemies more or less difficult to kill kind of ties into the the dynamic difficulty as well. How does that work in a, a addition to the dynamic components? 
So basically, there's always a base chance that like an enemy can, for this example, I'll just always talk about the carbon head half. There's always a chance that it'll generate a carbon head half, but basically, based on your play statistics, it'll have a higher or lower chance to generate it. And they can also generate plates on other parts of their body, like on their shins and forearms and stuff like that. Okay. Does this... Um, now, we've been talking about the kind of base-level enemy. Does this affect uh, the bigger, uh, you know, mid-tier and, like, boss-level characters as well, or...? In the demo, only in minor instances, because they were things that we added later on in the game as we started, like, figuring out more of the direction we'd want to take the game in if we were able to make it basically from scratch. So one of the... I think one of the only examples of that is the caustic dock with like the larger ones that have like the big arm they hit you with they can have their orbs that they kind of spawn in as a weakness around their head generate in a few different configurations so that they're different and those are the types of things that we could have on mid-sized enemies and other types of augmentations that kind of follow the same trends that the uh, smaller enemies had but it's definitely something we'd want to add more of going into the future specifically with boss fights too sure I feel like that that could be really crazy because um, I, I did not actually make it to the boss fight, um, but you know a, a lot of bosses just get down to like you know rote pattern memorization, um, and so if if you're kind of throwing wrenches into that you know potential pattern, then uh, it could make it pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think they also be cool like tying that back into the order of levels, like the cause and effect environments where sure. you get to a boss fight and it's been affected by something you did previously, so now it has like a different attack pattern and different properties and it's like shooting icicles at you or something. <laughs> Just go nuts with stuff. Definitely. So tied in really well with that same type of thing where it kind of changes things up but, it, but it's also tied into randomized elements. Mm-hmm. You could also make it super crazy where like if um... Yeah, you just go to all the areas before you go to, a, or all the areas that you could go to before going to a boss, and so it's just affected by everything. So it's exactly. it's throwing lava at you with one hand and, and icicles with the other, and <laughs> why did I do this to myself? <laughs> right. Uh, but that that could be an interesting, you know, just like um, um. Not not cause and effect, but just kind of like balancing things. So you know, if, if you're going out and around, and you know, getting all these other ammo types, and um, I don't, is there any sort of character progression? I mean, the the, the enemies are, are kind of getting upgrades. Do, does the character does um, do you actually get any upgrades to armor or weapons or anything like that? Oh yeah, we definitely have plans to do that. Okay, with the base weapons in general, we'd have like a light RPG elements where you kind of upgrade different stats and properties with them. And then okay. also, that could be a similar thing with armor, like changing the amount of armor you have in order to offset certain enemy types that are like doing more or less like trauma versus armor damage. Okay. So uh, so you just mentioned the uh, the health system and that there's there's both armor and trauma. Um, and so what, what's going on there? Usually we have one one health bar. <laughs> so one of the kind of cool things that we came up for this game was this kind of armor trauma health system. And basically the way it works is you have armor, which is just kind of direct physical defense, but you also have trauma, 
So as you take damage, your armor goes down, but your trauma increases. And basically, that's tied to the randomized enemy components. So they can, like, spawn in, you know, like a blunt crystal weapon or a mace or, like, a sharp dagger. And depending on the type of weapon that they generate, it'll do different amounts of damage to armor and trauma. So, like, if you get hit with a... If they have, like, a dagger-type weapon, that would do a lot of armor damage, but not necessarily a lot of trauma, because it would shatter on, like, the leather armor, but it wouldn't pierce it. Whereas, like, if if you got hit by a mace... It wouldn't really damage the leather armor, but you'd be like, oh my god, please. Mm. So basically, the randomized enemy components kind of tie into that system. And then it also lets us do other things like if an enemy attacks you with a it's like a big crystal or something, and it hits you, and it's blunt, and it shatters, that first hit would do like high trauma damage. But then if it goes to hit you again with the new shattered weapon, the second hit would do high trauma damage. Or, I'm sorry, high armor damage and the first hit would do high trauma. So basically the weapon that they have hitting you and breaking basically changes its properties to do two different sets of damage depending on what state it's in. And we think there's some cool stuff we can do with that too. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Now, there's also a a stamina system in the game as well that is affected by your health too, right? Oh, yeah. So basically the stamina system is tied directly to trauma. And like if you imagine this system, it's basically a circle where the left half, the left gauge half circle is armor and the right half is trauma. Basically the right half fills up with trauma as you take more damage until it eventually caps out and you're like in this, oh my god, I can't even aim state where you're just kind of stumbling around trying to make do with your current situation. But basically as you take more damage, you're directly cutting into your total stamina pool with the amount of trauma damage you're taking up with the idea that the more like you've endured the less just like you'd be able to exert yourself so if you've taken like 50% trauma damage and that ga- the gauge on the right half is half full then you'd only have the remaining 50% of that gauge to expend on stamina like you wouldn't be able to run as far or do as many melee attacks because you've taken a lot of physical damage and then once you use like a medcare, some other way of reducing that, you get that stamina pull back. Okay, so, just, so you're you're able to reduce that down with just like a med kit. You don't have to rest at a bonfire or anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. the, we're still gonna play around with the different types of healing and how we want to have that work out. But basically, okay. it's just something you'd be able to lower with an item or with an event like that. Okay. Because then, based on your current situation, you'd want to prioritize different enemies like. If your trauma is really high and you see two enemies coming after you and one of them has a like a sharp weapon and one has a mace, you want to be like, okay, I can't take any more trauma damage, so I'm going to focus down the one with the mace first because I can't afford to get hit by that one. But I have some armor to spare if the other one hits me, so he's less of a threat just based on my current criteria. Very cool. Would, um, you, you mentioned uh, previously about you know possible like upgrades and stuff like that. Um, and I, I feel like just everything... Uh, that that you say about the game just makes me think about it. others like oh well what, what if this happened it's, it's, sorry if I sound that way right. uh, but no, uh, like with, with different armor sets like would lighter armor potentially like give you a, a larger stamina pool so that like it would take longer before trauma would really hamper um, you know your stamina or you yeah. know, would would that have any effect on 
kind of your movement in the game, like bulkier uh, armor makes it harder to move or aim or whatnot. Yeah, and that was actually something specifically that we were talking about recently, where it's basically, since you have that kind of half-circle gauge, like your left half is armor, you can basically kind of offset it counterclockwise hmm. so that you, you've reduced the total amount of armor you can carry, but that basically makes up for it because that space that you freed up is now the new cap for stamina. So basically by reducing the armor in that wheel gauge, the stamina can go further into that territory. So that basically could change up like what type of playstyle you'd want to have. So you're okay. less protected from armor-type damage, but you now have more maneuverability. Cool. And that was something specific that I was thinking about with things that we'd want to do in like the environments. So a few examples that we came up with that kind of tie into the health system is if you're in like the cold area, that would have an effect where basically your armor becomes embrittled. Ooh. So the colder it is, the more likely it is that like a random armor hit could have like a 25% chance of doing double damage to armor because the armor is in a more fragile state where it just can kind of shatter based on just the environment you're in. And we'd have different things like that in different environments. Like if you're in a hot area, like a permanent part of your uh, stamina bar could be allocated towards just like a heat penalty or like you're in a hot environment so like 25% of your stamina gauge has like a permanent little like cap on it because you can't exert yourself that much because it's like 150 degrees or something like that. Sure. We want to have different environmental things like that basically in each area that kind of interacts with this health system we've put in place. Yeah, that sounds cool. That sounds really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we think there's a lot of cool stuff we can do with that. Sure, sure. Um, now, as, as previously mentioned, you know, you guys have the Kickstarter coming up. Um, why, why go the Kickstarter route? So, this entire time we've been kind of working out of pocket, like for the past three years, just as hobbyists. But over the past three, past three years, the past year, we've been uh, working on it full time, just kind of getting our skills up to par with where we'd want to be skill-wise to start the game from scratch at like the level that we're happy with, that we think people would be happy with. And basically, we'd want to have Kickstarter so that we could get the equipment and like the licensing necessary that we could work on the game or possibly get enough that we could work on the game full-time which would be really cool. Sure, sure. So this is more or less uh, you know, giving you guys the, the funds to be able to live and, and work on the game and, and buy the, the stuff that you need. Exactly. Okay. Uh, are there any particularly cool rewards that uh, you're, you're looking forward to showing off for people and people to you know, potentially get their hands on? Um, we're still putting together some of that information right now. Okay. Kickstarter is going to be in like seven weeks I think and we've got most of it hammered out we're going to be working on the rewards section next okay cool cool um, that we want to put on some stuff sure, sure. but don't want to you know say anything and then it, it not be there so yeah, exactly just, just leave people in suspense uh, <laughs> beach towels <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, actually that'd be pretty sweet uh, that, that might be pretty cool but uh, no promises. Uh, <laughs> uh, now, sad question of, of the evening. Um, what happens if you don't make it? So if we don't make it, we would just uh, move on. Basically, we'd be getting full-time jobs, but we would definitely still continue to develop 
projects in general as a hobby. Like even if if we like put rail theory on the side and work on like a smaller project first, we'll see what happens if we end up down that road. But in general, we'll definitely be continuing game development regardless of what happens with the Kickstarter. Okay. Because we still really enjoy it. We have some really cool ideas and stuff we want to implement. Sure. Sure. Awesome. Well, I, I think that does it for the the first part of the uh, the the interview here. So now now we go into what we call the end game, uh, which is uh, a set of questionnaire or it's, not, it's a questionnaire a set of questions. If I can talk. Um, that uh, it's, it's not necessarily related to the game, uh, but it's personal questions for you. And the first one is, who is your favorite video game protagonist? I'd probably say Leon S. Kennedy from Resident Evil. That makes sense. That fits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In Resident Evil 4 in particular, he just his the over-the-top cheesiness of like the dialogue and the execution of his character is just so fun. Sure. sure. So, can can we expect over the top cheesy dialogue uh, from Maybe. from real theory? <laughs> Maybe a little. <laughs> all right. Good to know. Um, all right. So, so flipping that on its head, who's your favorite antagonist? Not really sure. That's a, it's a difficult question. There are a lot of not good bad guys out there. <laughs> Not good in the sense that they're like evil, or not good in the sense that like man, they could have put more thought into this. <laughs> no. Sure, yeah, uh, yeah, both, both, yeah. And most most bad guys are are, are bad and not good. Um, but I feel I feel like so many are just kind of the, uh, you know, the atypical like just bad guy, you know, twirling mustache or exactly. kidnapping princesses or or whatever because, you know, that's that's what they do. That's exactly. That's what they get paid to from somewhere. <laughs> exactly. I'd say Gandor from Ocarina of Time is really cool. Okay. I still remember definitely the transformation at the end of that game to Ganon was like one of the most memorable things I've ever experienced in a game. It was just so cool as like a child. Sure. Like, oh my god, I'm gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, now, are there any um, trends in in video games that you've noticed and uh, you feel like aren't prevalent enough that you'd, you'd like to see more kind of widespread? Let's see, I think just getting diversity in games out is really good. Like specifically with Rail Theory, like the influence of the demo is very similar, like based off like Resident Evil 4, kind of like the Dead Space kind of thing, but the game itself would actually, we have a lot more like RPG element type plans for it. Mm-hmm. But I just think having a lot of diversity with different types of games is really important so that things don't get stuck on the same terrain for too long. Sure, sure. Are there any uh, any tropes out there that uh, you, you feel like should just go away? Um... Or at least become lesser, not necessarily go away. I guess there's always exceptions, but just there's been a lot of kind of this. Uh, he's probably set in place by Minecraft, but there's been an explosion of kind of these uh, survival crafting type games, mm-hmm. which are very fun and engaging. But there can be basically just oversaturation of certain genres, especially when like 
one specific game comes out and gets like extremely successful, there's a lot of like types of spinoff that kind of get on the same tangent. Sure, sure. I think it's always good like to see what can be experimented with the genre, but then there's also a lot of just kind of filler that comes out just to kind of occupy the spot to try to get on on some of it on the success of like a specific title. Totally. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that, that uh, you know, you definitely have the kind of clone titles that just show up to theoretically make a quick buck, which I assume the people that do that stuff have never actually made video games before because from everybody that I talk to, there's nothing quick, uh, nothing guaranteed about the bucks. So it's... <laughs> but um, but it's also kind of cool when, when you see the ones that, you know, take it and do something different because, um, you know, if... if if other people aren't like advancing the genre forward, then then everything's just a Minecraft clone. But eventually, you get kind of you know the crafting survival game where it's it's something that's applicable to you know you can have more diverse experience with that same kind of so- core set of principles. Uh, whereas you know I assume at some point everything that came out that involved a gun and the first-person perspective was just a Wolfenstein clone. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, eventually got to the place where it was, you know, just its own thing. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely... It's, it's needed, but also just can be like, please, can can you make something else? <laughs> exactly. Are there trends that you specifically have noticed? Um, it's your own question. Man, that's I hate it when people do that. Actually, at some point, I'm gonna have to answer these um, at the, <laughs> the end of our our regular uh, or the whole series that we're doing on the Dark Cast. I'm gonna have to answer these, and I, I try not to think about them because I want to feel the same fear that other people do. Um, and so I'm gonna go ahead and say something now, and I guess that means like when it comes actual time, I'll have to to come up with a new answer. Oh, sure. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> I would say the thing that I'm most sick of is and not just open world games, but Ubisoft style open world games. Definitely. Um, of like, you know, you you walk five feet, you press the map button, and there's 5,000 things on there. And it just, I, I just, man, I, I just don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that is a really good point. They're basically, I feel like the word linear has become like a very negative term in the gaming industry now. I feel yeah. like a ton of games have switched to the open world formula, which isn't a bad thing, but definitely linear games have their have a really good place where they can tell a really strong story. Totally. Just have like the, aspects. The, the worst offender that I'm I'm feeling right now is actually... Horizon Zero Dawn, which, like, in and of itself is is a great game. Um, but I played about 10 hours of it, and I, I brought up the map to see, like, my next, ne- next objective, which was, like, way far into, like, the clouded area of the map where I have to call... or I have to climb tall things to unveil, you know, the map or whatever. Oh, yeah. And it was just, like, it was just far away, and I was just like, I don't... I don't want to do that. Like, I just... I'm just going to play something else right now. <laughs> yeah, like a jet mount or something? Uh, you do, you uh, you can ride mounts in the game, but the one of the things about it is it, 
it's not like survival esque, but you do have a lot of crafting components, and you're constantly picking up resources. And whenever you're riding, like you, you then have to like get off your robot horse and then pick up the thing, and then you get back on your robot horse. You ride five feet, and there's something else to pick up. And it, it's not just with like icons on the screen; it's it's with stuff in the world. Like there, you can't walk five feet without there being something to pick up. And it's just like I like. You don't have to do this. Like, <laughs> exactly. I would rather there be like meaningful dots on the map exactly. than a thousand dots on the map. Like it's uh, so. So yeah, I guess that that's my trope that I, I wish there was there was less of. And plus, like yeah. after The Witcher Three, like I just I don't know what open world can contend. So, mm. and if you haven't played The Witcher Three, then you you should go play the The Witcher Three. I definitely want to play it. Um, Really you, uh, I know being a, a student can make funds tight, so just go ahead and explain on Kickstarter that hey, fifty bucks is going towards The Witcher Three because we need to play this for research. Just, people will be okay with it. It's <laughs> um. Anyway, uh, so normally I, I've already asked um, kind of what other profession would you would you like to give a shot. Uh, so, if you could play any game again for the first time, what would you like to play? I'd probably say Morrowind, The Elder Scrolls Three. Mm-hmm. It's probably my favorite game of all time. Okay. So, like, like still going back and playing it is still a lot of fun. Sure. Like, you can yeah. get very technical about trying to mid-max leveling up and doing things in certain orders. Like, that element of it is a lot of fun to me. Sure, sure. Yeah, that, I think that was the first RPG I'd ever actually played, and I did not know what I was getting into. Yeah, um, hold your hand. <laughs> I, I I spent at least half an hour making my character. I uh, I left, you know, like the slave ship that you get off of. Yeah. yeah. I walked I walked into a uh, like lighthouse or windmill or something, and uh, stole some like fruit, and then a blue elf. Uh, fought me and I died and because I hadn't saved I had to like it I had nothing I had to recreate my character and I was like nope <laughs> exactly and I just stopped that's that's the end of my moral that's story that's my legacy <laughs> yeah it gives a lot of uh, no, the other thing I'd probably say would be Resident Evil 4 that's just a very good game sure I remember we rented that when game rentals were a thing oh yeah <laughs> rented that from a blockbuster when that was also a thing Rest and in peace. There. And the clerk who worked there was like, oh my god, it's so good. Because we'd, we'd gotten that following the, uh, I think it was a Resident Evil Zero? A Resident Evil remake, I can't remember. But we went to Resident Evil 4 from that, and it was just, mm-hmm. oh, this is amazing. Sure. Yeah, and it's always, like, it's a good sign of, of like, game quality, where I, I did not play it until it actually came out on the 360. So, you know, this is, like, six years or whatever after the game originally came out. And I was like, wow, this, like, Ashley's annoying, but this game still really holds up. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Especially with, like, Morrowind specifically, like, I think it was called the MGE Morrowind Graphics Extender, where it's basically, like, one massive collaboration that's, like, a self-installing mod kit that basically just installs itself on your computer and everything's compatible, and it basically just overhauls a lot of elements of the game that brings it into a more modern time so people can play back through it again. Oh, nice. Uh, get That's their cool. like, graphics fixed and just add other features to it. 
So I thought that was really cool. Definitely. That is definitely cool. Um, so on the, on the flip side of that, if you could forget having played a game, what game would you want to forget? Probably Amnesia, A Machine for Pigs. Okay. It's, a, it's pretty specific, but I was a huge fan of the original Amnesia Machine. No, I'm sorry. Oh, God. What was, the, what was the subtitle for the original Amnesia? It's ironic because I'm having amnesia. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. It's self-fulfilling. Oh, man. That's... Yeah, it's not good. I'm right, I'm right along there. The Dark Descent. I actually can't remember it. There it is. The Dark it's, Descent. It, I was going to say The Descent into Darkness, but I'm like, that's <laughs> definitely not it. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, so... Off the top of my head, that's probably my first pick. Man, I need to go back and play that again. Why so? What uh, what changed in Machine for Pigs from um, Dark Descent that uh, you want to just completely forget it? I think it was more of like a disappointment thing. Like, just the atmosphere in the Dark Descent was just so incredibly well done. And the beginning of a Machine for Pigs was very well like the atmosphere was really good but then like as it progressed I remember there were just specific things that didn't really hold up like all of the enemy there's I think mainly there was just one type of enemy interaction it wasn't really that scary of an enemy like the amnesia games are always about very atmospheric horror so like how scary an enemy directed looks was never really a huge issue they weren't like that scary but the other thing was enemies were always telegraphed of when they were in the area, so like that basically erased a lot of the suspense from the game itself. Okay. And then just as we went through, like I can't remember the specific things, but I just remember feeling like, man, uh. <laughs> like it wasn't a bad game, but I just had really high expectations for it. I'm sure a lot of people did. Sure. Probably, people probably had that met in different ways, but I specifically remember. As the so, game went on, just certain things were cropping up that were kind of going against the things that made Amnesia a really good atmospheric game. Yeah, that, that's always a, a challenge that you kind of face with any uh, game that's, you know, whether it's just, you know, one sequel or, you know, the, the seventh sequel or whatever. Um, exactly. You know, if you change things up from what the what the audience, you know, whether whether or not the creators see this as, like, the core experience of the game, if the, the audience sees it as this one thing, then, like, you could just piss off a bunch of people. Like, I I hate Splinter Cell Conviction. Um, like, it's, it's a good game on its own, but having Splinter Cell in the title, like, you, you can't not kill people, you can't hide bodies, um, you Michael Ironside is just drunk and angry the whole game and not like sarcastic at all and uh it's just it's just not like if it was in, if it was just drunk guy going after the his daughter's killer like if that was the title like it wouldn't sold obviously but like that <laughs> I would have been fine with what the the game was um yeah it usually does come down to things like that like if I went back and played it again it would probably be completely fine and it's still probably a good game I just specifically remember just things like that. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I'm with you on that. So, yeah, play through Soma. Okay. Yeah, I, I've Frictional. not. Actually, I remember A Machine for Pigs was published by Frictional Games, but it was made by the Chinese Room, but then I believe Soma was actually made by Frictional Games again. 
I, I believe that is the case, yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember when Machine for Bakes came out that, I mean, I, I remember it getting some positive press, but the kind of consent consensus was that, you know, it was not like the same type of game the original was, one was. It was more akin to like Dear Esther with like the trappings of amnesia around it. Exactly. Uh, yeah, like just light puzzle elements were kind of removed. There were very small puzzles in the game, and they're not necessarily what made Descent into Darkness like a... It wasn't like one of the strongest suits, but it was still like fun, because it tied in with the horror. Like if, Even trying to do like a simple puzzle while you're like paranoid is very effective. Oh yeah, and like the, the I think it's like the first puzzle that you you have in the first game where you're in the sewers and there or the the basement or whatever, and there's the invisible enemy, and so you're like throwing body parts into the water yeah, yeah. to distract them so that you can open the door. Like yeah, that's that's right. not a complicated puzzle, but the fact that there's an invisible monster trying to eat you, like that makes the puzzle exciting and tense it's and crazy. Like super tense, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a type of thing that I just felt was lacking in a machine for pigs. I gotcha. Okay. Because they focused a lot on, like, I've never played Dear Esther or have seen it, but I'm assuming it's more of, like, walking through a story. Like, it's very atmospheric in its delivery, but there's minimal gameplay. Yeah, no, it's, when people say, like, the, the term walking simulator... Uh, like Dear Esther is the epitome of that where it's like a single path well I think there are a few branching paths that you can go on but it's not like largely it's like literally like the trail like the trail you're walking on because it's outdoors you're walking on a trail splits and then they reconvene like ahead like there's it's not true like you know split up level design or anything but literally you could just kind of hold forward on the game and eventually beat it Um, which it's I, I I think it's lovely for what it is, but as like gameplay air quotes, like there, there's nothing <laughs> there. <laughs> so you have to have the really strong story elements. Yeah, and it's interesting because they did some some interesting stuff with the story because it it's all just told over uh, narration of like your character's thought processes as you're walking, um, and there's like a random pool of uh, basically blurbs that the the character will will say as you're going through the game and so you you don't necessarily hear the same things in two different playthroughs and you definitely don't hear them like in the same order um so it, it the the story that is told is is relatively vague but it, it works pretty well and at the end you know like the the pieces that you got uh while not being specific do paint a pretty like vivid picture um, it's uh, it, it's it's worth checking out. I would say. Yeah, yeah, I definitely want to check it out. But uh, anyway, um, time to, for the the final question, and it is the the weirdest of them all. Uh, at the gates of the Mushroom Kingdom, when uh, you've come to the end of your life, and dutiful, dutiful Saint Toad is there, um, to let you in. What do you want him to say to you? What would I want dutiful Saint Toad to say to me? Yep. I don't know how he reached Sainthood, but, you know, he's Mushroom Kingdom. It's the Mario heaven. It, it works. He's, he's Saint Toad. It's, it's fine. It's... <laughs> About, you done good. You done good. <laughs> and then I ride off into the Golden Gate sunset. Nice. On a, on a 
Toad horse. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say Yoshi, but Toad horse works too. Yeah, sure. <laughs> That'll be canon soon, I guess. Uh, I can, I can imagine, like, you know, everybody expects Toad to be like, here we go. But instead, like, he's he's got, like, a cigar or something. He's just like, you done good, boy. Just like, and he nods. Okay. Just cracks open for you. <laughs> Indeed. All right, well, Kurt, that, that does it. We made it to the end of the end game. You survived. Congratulations. Nice. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining me as we, we talk about, uh, or talked about Rail Theory. If you could let our listeners know uh, when and where they can get more information about the game. Yeah, so if you go to www.railtheory.com, we have all the information about the game and just the plans we have for it. We also have a newsletter that you can sign up for. We'll be sending out major updates and just Kickstarter news in general if you sign up for that newsletter. And we also have a Twitter, which is just twitter.com slash rail theory, where we're posting updates and just different screenshots and talking about different stuff. It's fun. Awesome. So and actually, um, secret final question that I forgot to ask earlier. Oh, why sure. is it called rail theory? It rail or is that a spoiler? Is, <laughs> I can give you a hint spoiler. Okay. Rail is an acronym that has to do with the events of the story. Cool. All right. Well, thank you once again, and uh, good luck as you guys kind of finalize, you know, the, the Kickstarter process and continue working on the game. Best of luck. Yeah. Thanks, Jonathan. <laughs>